Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. What's up this week, Rick? My big thing is that I'm viewing internships as a forcing function. Yeah. And elaborate. Yeah. So I I had no plans of, of offering internships this summer until someone reached out to me via LinkedIn and said, Hey, my summer plans were canceled. I really need, wanted to have some experience this year. I'm in between my sophomore and junior year at college. And I uh, really, really appreciate having, if you could put together or push point me in a direction where I might be able to find a micro internship in Park City, Utah. I said, what's a micro internship? And she explained that to me. And I really enjoyed talking to her about this via LinkedIn. So it led to a phone call, which ultimately led to me making available a non-paid micro internship to this person. This is Lena, who's our current intern at Leg Up Health. She has done such an incredible job. We meet once a week. We talk about what she's working on. There's some coaching involved. There's also some challenging of me. Um, but it's been an incredible experience uh, because it's 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 motivated me to get some work done that I probably wouldn't have gotten done otherwise, and get it done fast and and well. And so I've been, I was reflecting last uh, Sunday when I, I I do this newsletter at, at my personal website and. I realized that one of my biggest wins from last week was I had stopped procrastinating as much on getting stuff done at Leg Up Health. Hmm. And when you're when you're working on a startup, there's no one, especially as a solo founder, there's no one there saying you need to get this done by X date. Oftentimes there isn't a deadline. And for most of us, that's a very difficult thing if you're not intentional about it to overcome because most of the things in life have deadlines and eventually those deadlines creep up and they have, they, they, they naturally force you to, for lack of a better word, get shit done. And I have been absent that for a while. Uh, I found a leg up health in February. You've been great to talk to, but I haven't really been inten- you know intentional about setting deadlines. In fact, I've avoided them. Um, but I realized that, that was a problem. And because of my experience with with Lena, I realized that there was a solution right in front of me. And I realized internships are one of the non-paid internships. If you're really doing them right and you hire really good people and you're being thoughtful about giving value, there's a there are incredible forcing function to get work done because you have to provide context. You have to make sure that they're making progress on their project every week. And if you have if you have a project that is meaningful, um, that they can move forward, and then it also forces you to get some work done to to clear the road for them, what an incredible forcing function! So, you're uh, flying up even higher. I'm I'm just I'm realizing that there are, in a startup, there's there are so many different things that you need to get done that don't have deadlines, and the more forcing functions you can create that motivate you to get the important things done, the better. As long, mm-hmm. I mean, you can go too far with this, like anything else. But um, I'm looking at non-paid internships um, as a an incredible forcing function. You know, and, and I say non-paid just because that's the stage of business I'm at. I look forward to next year, you know, potentially being able to offer compensation. 
I'm having to offer a lot of compensation in the form of coaching and mentorship um, and learning opportunities, but uh, to compensate for that. But it's um, I'm just uh, I've gotten a lot done in the last mm-hmm. week, and um, as a result of sort of having this forcing function epiphany, I'm I've opened up uh, five additional internship projects for the uh, for for Leg Up Health this summer, and I have a bunch of interviews this week. Awesome. Cool. I've actually experienced something pretty similar where it's not quite that I didn't have deadlines, but um, I think if you're working on something without any disruption, sometimes you can get a little too in the weeds. And so I had to put one of my projects down when the intern started to, to help the, you know them do all their stuff. And now I'm coming back to it. And I'm like, that's probably not the most important thing for me to be doing. <laughs> so I'm just not going to go back to it right now. It's a great example. Another example is you were spending a lot of time on a project and not getting anything done. And then you come back to it, and and because of the constraints you now have on your time, you get ninety percent of the work done that's good enough in ten percent of the time, and so there's this uh, massive efficiency gain as well. Yeah, for sure. Of course, that can be taken too far. Where like some projects need unstructured time for you to just get get deep on the project, and if you're constantly having meetings and stuff like that, it's hard to do that. So I guess it's a balancing act, but you were too far in the direction of no meetings, no accountability, that type of thing. Yep. Too far. And I've corrected and I'm probably going to overcorrect, but I'd rather, I think it's better to overcorrect the other way um, at this time for me and my personality uh, and maybe make a slight adjustment after that, then stay in the status quo. Well, and the beautiful thing with interns, am I right that you haven't, Zane, uh, people keep had interns, but you weren't like super involved with that. The great thing about interns is they leave at the end of the summer. So like no matter what you get yourself into, it's temporary and it actually, I think, creates this really nice seasonality to life where it's like during the summer, I'm just going to be in a different mode. I'm going to have a lot of like kind of babysitting to do, basically. And even if that's not a great use of time, whatever, it'll end in August and I'll get back to normal stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I just want to be clear. I, I You said babysitting. Um, I don't I haven't had to babysit at all. Um, and maybe that's just a unique situation with the particular intern that I have. Um, in the project, but, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, people keep telling me that internships take a lot of time and energy and I haven't so far, I haven't experienced that. I just, I, I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know. They probably why don't have to, but you're, you're, you're doing a different type of internship. I think most tech startups are doing internships to hire, um, which you're not doing. If you wanted to hire her, you'd probably be doing a lot more like cultural onboarding, come and meet the team. Let's do activities after work, play board game nights, stuff like that. Babysitting is a mean term that I shouldn't have used, but I really just mean like, um, it's, you have to be really intentional about welcoming someone into your culture in an inclusive and friendly way. And a remotely this summer is weird for me too. You don't have to do that. Like we have interns and it takes time. I think I'm probably putting more time than you are just because we have kind of a system for that. But a lot less time than I have in previous summers because there's no ex- expectation that we're going to like have the board game night type of experience. Yeah. So it's, yeah, administrative stuff that that uh, you have to do when you have a cult when you have people to onboard. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, what about you? What what are you up to? The big news for this week for me is uh, we've we talked last week about I was considering a price increase. It's official. We're doing it. Um, well, I should say it's going to be official on Monday. So if any of my customers listen to this, you're you're getting a sneak peek. But uh, <laughs> we're going to announce on Monday. We're not going to raise prices on Monday, but we're going to announce it 
so Monday's June 22nd. We're going to announce that July 22nd, um, the price for new customers only. So this will not affect any current customers. New customers who sign up after July 22nd will pay $15 a month instead of $10 a month. That's, that, that is awesome. I think that's great. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I've been really gun shy about a price increase. Like I, I kind of regret we should have done this. We kind of decided to do this six months ago, but we were like, let's see if how long we can go at $10. We were like, eventually we'll have to do this, like inflation and stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's see how long we can make it. I wish we'd just done it then. Life would be a lot easier. How many years ago was that? That we made that decision? Yeah. Like just six months ago, just at okay. the beginning of this okay. year. Cool. But we we kind of said like, we know we're not going to be able to last at $10 forever. But if we, you know, we are going to do all these other marketing projects, we're like, if the marketing projects work well enough, we don't need to raise prices yet. Um, but A, we didn't know there would be a recession coming. <laughs> That's one reason I wish we'd done it before. But also... The more I think about it, the more I'm just like, this is going to make everything easier. And it's not that much for our customers. And it's just the the, the business is going to go from like working, but barely to really solid, good unit economics, like solid foundation. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think this is an example of something that it took a recession for you to pull the trigger on, but you should have probably done before the recession, but this is why I, I, I wish, I hope at coming out of recessions at some point on these uh, episodes, we get to a place where we know how to cr- like kind of create a version of a recession. That's like a scenario scenario that forces our companies to make decisions that they should be making anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I wish there was like a way to like make, get the result of recession without the recession. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that before. Like sometimes when like constraints kind of cause you to be creative, but h- how do you fake the constraints basically? Yes. Now, having said that, I do I think this can be and actually has been taken too far by the bootstrapper indie hacker community, specifically around pricing, where it's like, I'm saying I wish I'd done this earlier. I don't want anyone to interpret this to mean I subscribe to this, like constantly raise your prices and push them to the limit. And, you know, if half your customers aren't complaining about price, they're not high enough. I just think that's bullshit. I'm not at all like that. Our goal is to never like we made it almost 11 years before this price increase. I hope we can make it another decade before the next one. So I'm not on, on board the whole, like get really aggressive about this, you know, that's yeah. A good point. Um, anyway, so uh, just a couple notes on that. So I am excited about it. There were a few interesting things to think about just thinking through it. Like you don't, you kind of take for granted, um, like the current pricing. So for example, we're raising it to $15. What does that mean for, we, we allow people to pay in British pounds in addition to US dollars. So we had to figure out what does that mean for that? Um, because like charging in multiple currencies is tough because who knows what the future of exchange rates holds and all that stuff. So we had to make that decision. We had to think through things like, what if a customer cancels and then comes back? What if they like, like, they have a multi-user account and they want to break it into individual accounts. Do they get the, the the new price or the old price? Just a lot of kind of little details in the implementation that we had to think through. Uh, that's interesting. Did you raise prices at people keepers in benefits? Yes. Um, but we, the way we did it was, I mean, we, we were at 12 bucks a month and we upped it to 15 and basically said, you can keep the 12 if you prepay. For a year. Yeah. But we, we forced it on existing customers upon renewal. Gotcha. But so like probably a lot of people paid annually and they, they kept their price the same. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's one thing. All our competitors, th- there's a $12 grouping. Like every cheap CRM is exactly $12. But if you go to their website and you switch, that's if you pay annually. If you switch to monthly, it's actually between 15 and 25 so we're going to try to call that out. We're going to try to shame those companies a little bit more on our pricing page. Like, if you're looking at other CRMs, make sure you you realize how they're misleading you here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, a, a little change that that. Sorry to. I've, I've got multiple things, but they're all related to pricing here. Um, I'm starting to rethink the metrics that I'm using to model the business in my head. For this entire time, we've always used number of users as our really only metric. Like that's the sign of success, um, and that doesn't work as well here. Like obviously, if the number of users goes up, we make more money, but different users will be paying us different amounts. So it's not as easy to just say, "Well, a hundred users means a thousand dollars MRR." So I thought through, and and I also like when I communicate to the company, all the employees, how was last month? Well, we added. 200 net users or something like that. I'm going to try to, I think, shift to ARR as our new, uh, like annual recurring revenue as our new metric. Um, I considered MRR as well. Obviously, they're easy to translate back and forth, but it's, I know that sounds like a minor thing, but it's totally changing how I, like, I just have 10 years of muscle memory built up over, I know a 225 user month is about typical. I've no, I've got a little thing post-it note here. So that would be like a little over $25,000 in new ARR. So I'm trying to like get used to this new way of thinking about the world. The other way to solve this, you're, you're probably, I think it's a good switch. Um, the one way to solve this and kind of marry the two is to focus on a average revenue per customer number that is, you know, you keep really close track of, you can do it on an annual basis or a monthly basis. Um, but that way you can always do the, you can always sort of have that metric and then the number of users and quickly do the math in your head based on that number. Are you, and are you talking about, so you could do av- average revenue per user or average revenue per customer. And that's something we've never really used is like how many actual customers do we have? It could work either way, but I think, how would you think about it? I, I think for purposes of how like staying consistent with what you've done, so you can not have to go through major muscle memory changes, I would stick with users and I would just have an average revenue per user. And you could that when you when you start tracking that, you'll start seeing it go up. And that's an interesting that's an interesting number to make go up, right? Yes. And and uh, ARR can, just making ARR go up can be a little bit more. You know, I think it's less constraining. And so I always like the unit metric better than the total metric. Um, but uh, that was me. Yeah. So I've got, I, I kind of redid all my reports uh, the other day. And that, that was probably my third. Like if number of users and ARR are kind of the main ones, the average revenue per user was the next one. And yeah, it's so like now that I think about this more, it's so interesting. Our first month after launching this. So, so let me just give an example. Our t- like in the last month, we netted 131 users in the last 28 days. Uh, but th- that that actually means we added 571 new like users from new accounts and then we had some churn, right? If you if we net zero users, but it's like plus 500 minus 500, that's a 200 that's the equivalent of gaining 250 users prior to this change. Right, because we're losing entirely ten dollars users and gaining entirely fifteen dollars users. It's I'm having trouble. Not like it's not like a problem, but wrapping your head around that. It's a lot more complicated than the old model. Yep. Um, <laughs> one thing you can 
one thing you can do is I think what the way I wrap my head around stuff like this was to create like a, a long-term forecast with what my assumptions were for multiple years, even like five or 10 years and mm-hmm. sort of see like, if we maintain our current growth rate, what the, what that change looks like over time. So I can sort of just have some milestones near, you know, near term, medium term and long term on what that average revenue per customer should be if we're hitting our numbers. Yeah. Um, but like kind of I think like until you start looking at this number more, you're not going to have a quick assessment, uh, the ability to have a quick assessment on whether or not that's a good number or a bad number. Yeah, and that's kind of my plan is to to do what you just said but wait at least a few months to get my bearings cuz for example, the month one, only $10 users can churn. So that's easy. But month two, it's going to be like mostly $10 users churning. And like, I don't know what percentage of the 50, like, will the $15 cohort churn at a higher rate? I think my assumptions would be really wrong if I guessed right now, but I'm hoping to get my bearings and then put that model together. I'll just challenge you a little bit on that. Um, part of what, what the, the most valuable thing is to make an assumption and just force yourself to do it. You're going to be wrong. This is financial. This is financial discipline. And then, you know, in three months, reflect on your assumption mm-hmm. and ask why you were wrong. That is a really useful exercise that leads to a much better assumption the second time you do it versus having just waited to do it in the, you know, and not having tried with a, with just your gut. So okay, anyway, um, I, I would encourage that. That's a, that's definitely like a, I probably uh, over-engineer my financial stuff because of that stuff like that. I do that for our family as well, but um, you know, there's definitely bias there is all I'm trying to say. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a crack at it and see if I can. I'm also like, I don't, I've never done this level of financial forecasting cause it's more complicated, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, yeah. Back to you. All right. Updates wise, man, I have on here launched referral program. Hopefully, uh, that has not happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I got the things done that are very useful very important um, for making that easy, especially on the messaging side. Uh, so that's going to get pushed next week, most likely, although I, I might be able to pull it off this week. Um, what I what I have found out, though, is that uh, automating onboarding is critical to a successful successful referral program. So there's what I'm, I, I definitely know the referral program structure I'm going to launch with. It's going to be $10 for the referrer, $10 for the referee. So I've got, and I've got most of the messaging around that and how to work, but in terms of implementing it, I can't, I don't want to ask someone to refer someone when they can't go to the website, uh, and sign up and trigger the referral without talking to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just feels, I don't know, it feels a little bit, uh, clunky. Um, so I, I, my, my number one priority right now is on, uh, on, a, on the product side and the, in the referral program side is automating, onboarding so that someone can come to legupelt.com, go through a series of sort of qualification questions to make sure that they're eligible and then add their policy. Um, And if they choose to make me the broker um, all in one fell swoop, and then that will, I don't think I'll hook up the automatic referral trigger, but by being able to like, you know, hit the trigger for the reward, I, I, they can in their mind have a, yay, I got my $10 moment. Yeah. And I mean, even if you do end up talking to them, that'll still, this is what, I mean, what you're doing is basically productized service. And this is the productized part of it is any part of the service that wasn't a a human, wasn't uniquely good at remove that friction so that you can spend all your time talking to them about the stuff that only a human can do. 
Yep. Makes sense. And part of one, one, one thing I realized is that in order to make this referral program work, it's got to be what I, what, I, what I want them to be able, what I want our customers and referral partners to be able to say is, hey, check this out. It's free. The service is free of charge and it takes less than five minutes to set up an account. Mm-hmm. And if I want to be able to, I can't deliver on that value proposition yet. So therefore I can't launch my referral program. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, getting $10 for five minutes of work is not, not bad ROI. <laughs> exactly. You got it. So yeah, cool. um, that's, those are my updates. Uh, do you have any other ones? Yeah. The other one, uh, last week also we talked about, I was kind of saying I'm struggling or not, maybe not struggling, but I'm, uh, considering many different options for product prioritization. And you proposed kind of a, a way to think about this, which is like break break things into different categories. I think you proposed three types of projects. One is increasing reach to like get more people to hear who we are. One is increasing conversion rates to get uh, people who are signing up for free trials more likely to convert. And I might actually make that tweak that a bit to say, uh, things people think they want prior to signing up. So like it may not be the conversion step necessarily, but like checking something off their feature list that they consider required. Um, and then the third was like big picture vision stuff. And I would add a fourth on that we didn't talk about last week, which is making current customers happier. So anyway, I, I kind of took that. That was helpful. Um, I took that and, and then just said, what are like what would the number one project in each of those categories be? And that kind of resurfaced some things that we had on our list, but that I wasn't really thinking about actively. Um, like appointment scheduling being one of them. That's something I've talked with you about a lot, but that's for me, the number one reach thing we could do. If we built that, our customers would be sending emails out to their customers with a link to us that would help with reach. So anyway, it just helped kind of, and then it also made it really obvious. A few of the things we were thinking about doing are like in the make current customers happy category, but they're not the number one make current customers happy. So we booted those. So anyway, we still don't have things 100% figured out, but that was really helpful for thinking about what we should be working on. And it's nice. We have exactly four software engineers. We have these four categories. So probably it'll look something like we'll just take the top one from each category and knock those out in the next six months. How did your team respond to like or the bucketing of this, of, of projects like this? Was it helpful to them? Um. I'm not sure. So the main decision making that happened was with me and Brack and in our weekly one-on-one, it was very helpful in that conversation. I brought this up in my group brainstorming, which which is like with three random employees. And they were like, I buy that. But, and then they were just kind of like, I don't have anything to say about that. And I was like, okay, well, the way I interpreted this is we should work on project A, B, C, D. And they were all like, yep. So they didn't exactly, it didn't give them ideas, but it it was a way for me to communicate why I was justifying my ideas to them. And it seemed to help with that. That's good. That's good. Um, interesting. It'll, I'll be interested if, if this works and, and it sticks around as to like terminology. I've never seen probably ro- road mapping done this way. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in what it, what it leads to in terms of future ideas. Because um, it definitely... Like it, it's much easier to come up with an idea within one of these buckets than just a broad product idea. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the case that each of these categories gets 20%, 25% of our effort, but no matter what, you shouldn't work on something that's not at the top of one of these lists. That's what was really helpful for me is like we were working on item number three from one of these lists and it's just like, what are we doing? That's <laughs> That's not the right one to work on here. I was really surprised in group brainstorming people. I kind of said, okay, you... 
nobody had any ideas exactly, but I was like, can you just rank these four things for me? Like, which should be the highest priority of these four buckets? I was really surprised by what I heard. All, uh, actually, it was four people this week, not three. All four of them ranked making current customers happy at the bottom of the list, which given that our whole culture is about making current customers happy, I was really, really surprised by. Digging into it, what they all said was just, all these other things will make our current customers even happier than what we think will make current customers happy. Like having a five-year vision that we achieve is better for our customer than going after this really short-term thing, which was actually super helpful for me because prior to this, I had surveyed all my employees and said, what do you want us to build? And they all overwhelmingly picked the short-term customer happiness projects. Now that I have this language to communicate the difference between long-term vision and the short-term customer happiness, it totally flipped what they wanted. And so it, it which is, it flipped it to what I wanted, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it gave like context and information for uh, the, the team members to, to, to think like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's it, the it's ultimate. just another... That's the ultimate like team member productivity hack. Like if you can get team members the context to think like you, man. Oh. Without them becoming yes men though. That's the challenge is it's easy enough to get someone on board with what you're saying, but then you don't get any good ideas from them. Yeah, and and uh without them becoming overwhelmed with the information. Like that's the other challenge. <laughs> and and the and the, you know, the stress that comes with having to make the trade-off decisions. Mm-hmm. So I uh, you know, baby steps here, but increasingly in my experience of becoming like more comfortable with the leadership responsibilities, just the ability to, if you already know something, the ability to frame it in a way that makes sense to employees is just, I I would have rolled my eyes at this five years ago. I'd have been like, this is like bullshit MBA speak or whatever, but like, it's super important. (laughs) Yep. yep. Uh, Communication. It's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, moving on to ransom shout outs, I, uh, I have to call this out. I, I want to get your take on this defund the police movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your reaction? Makes a lot of, I mean, different people interpret that in different ways, but the, the basic premise that police are doing are being asked to do a lot of things that are not, that they're not being trained for. And that like, you don't need a gun and a badge to do. I buy, so shifting funding to you know social workers and schools and stuff like that i i, I buy the premise you seem skeptical i just don't like the link the, the diction I, I feel like what is meant by this isn't what's being said and i think that causes a lot of unnecessary people who who could be supporters of of this movement just like going just on principle i disagree and I don't know. I so it's kind of like the same thing with the ACAB stuff. Uh, all cops are bastards. I I I I I have to. I spend my time today, like with people, with my friends, explaining what is what they mean when they say defund the police, or what is meant when it when someone says defund the police versus that you know versus talking about the actual issue. And I don't know. It seems inefficient. Um, but I also see the other side of saying something completely preposterous getting people's <laughs> attention so that you do have the conversation. So I don't know. Yeah. Th- there's a term for this, right? The Overton window, I think it's called. Are you familiar with that? No, tell me about it. Uh, I might, uh, I only know it through context clues. I haven't like read the actual definition of it, but I think the Overton window refers to basically what are the acceptable ideas in the realm of mainstream thought? 
And both extremes want to pull the Overton window towards them, not to necessarily make that thing happen, but to make that acceptable. And then the compromise that you ultimately settle on is closer to their center. That's where I'm getting to. I'm starting to just see politics for what they are, which is a massive negotiation. And every negotiation where I was just honest with what I wanted, I didn't get what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so like, <laughs> I, you know, it's like people suck at like just doing the right thing. So you might as well start with like, you know, defund the police and, and settle on massive police reform. Yeah. Having said that, I think a lot of people do want it. And I know I follow a lot of people who are basically like the problem with the like Democrat centrists is they're more interested in being polite and not making enemies than they are in actually fixing problems. And so I think a lot of people would take your argument and be like, yes, it is going to alienate a lot of people. Fuck those people. Uh, This is how change happens. (laughs) I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see that as just the way things are not agreeing with it or disagreeing with it, but just going, okay, this is how it works. How do I, what's my role in all this? Um, But uh, man, I just, it does. I wish that we didn't have to start at such extremes and negotiation. Uh, It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. If only the world were a different place from what it is. (laughs) The other shout out I want to give is we had a really interesting reach out from a listener and I apologize if I'm, you correct me, Tyler, if I'm getting this wrong, but Akshay Anand, is that how you pronounce the name? Sounds right to me, but uh, cool. Yeah. Correct us uh, if we got that wrong. He's the founder of, is it Userbit? Mm-hmm. Which is a, a basically a product t- team uh, collaboration tool for UX uh, designers. And really interesting, he reached out to us on Twitter with some uh, episode ideas and we've had some interesting conversations. I think you've had some conversations with, with we both had individual conversations with, um, with uh, Akshay. And I mean, how do you want to have this conversation? Do you want to give some? You want me give some context, and then we can sort of uh, talk about it. One thing I want yeah. to say is that I, I really appreciate. It. It's really fun to talk to people <laughs> and, <laughs> and hear and hear about their businesses and the challenges that they face. Uh, because one, I learn from it. So I guess if you're listening and you have problems that we're not covering here and you're interested in us discussing them, reach out and give us some context because you know maybe we can just have a conversation right then and there and it can help both of us or we can bring it on the show. In this particular case, I wanted to bring it on the show and talk to you about it. Yeah, sounds good. So this is sort of like, as long as we have interesting things to say, we'll just kind of dive into the questions he asked and um, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So one of the challenges uh, he faces is he's, first of all, like, check it out. It's, is it userbits.com? I don't know the exact website. Userbit. 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 Um, it's impressive. Like you, you go to it and it's, it's a clearly a, a company that has product market fit that has, um, has customers signing up self onboarding. One of the and big, cha- sorry, real quick. That's userbit.userbitapp.com. Userbitapp.com. Um, so if you go there, it's really interesting site. Um, clearly, uh, well positioned, well thought through. It's got uh, he's got customers coming and signing up, self onboarding. They're really happy. Um, he's also like when, when you you know you have some something when uh, you're you're serving the the self serve market and the big boys. You know it could be uh, existing teams that you're servicing. You know having other teams say, hey, I want that too within the same company, and then then the big corporate buyers come or just big companies find you and say, hey. I want to. I want this for all of my users. So huge expansion opportunity. 
but that comes with enterprise sales. And neither Tyler, neither you, Tyler, or or I are, are enterprise sales experts. Um, but we both, I think, have probably been tugged in that direction before um, with our businesses and had to face the uh, substantial legal requirements that go into you know, doing a big deal, the time investment and, and selling, the different onboarding challenges that come with uh, high, user, uh, high user count uh, customers. And uh, so you know, he had some really interesting questions and you know, topics to discuss uh, today. Did any stand out to you, Tyler? Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there were specifics that we can get into, but the general question I think is just, should I even be entertaining this? Which is one that I've faced a lot. Like, I don't know what like user bit, what the goal is or who the target customer is perfectly well, but like for less annoying CRM, it's not for big companies, but someone comes along and they're like, we'll add a thousand seats in one fell swoop. And it's like, that would that would be basically all the growth we need for the rest of the year. It's hard not to take that really seriously, but also it's just a huge distraction. So to me, that's the fundamental question is like, there's details of how do you do this? How do you do that? But should you even entertain this? Did you Have you entertained that in the past? Yes, sort of. How, can you, <laughs> how did you entertain it? So first off, I think there's two types of inbound interest you get. And one is from legit real companies that they're going to make your life miserable because that's what enterprises do, but they actually want to give you money at the end of this. And there's a different type that's from total posers. Like, um, I, for some reason, this actually stopped with Less Annoying Serum. Once we reached a certain size, I think the posers identified us as sophisticated enough that what they're doing wouldn't work on us. But in the early days of Less Annoying Serum, we got reached out to by so many like people who wanted to white label us or resell us or, oh, I'm starting this business. It's going to have, you know, right now we only have three employees, but we're going to have 5,000 employees six months from now, you know, that type of thing. Um, I didn't know better. So in the early days, I entertained those. If someone's saying that type of thing, I would say it's it's a waste of time. Just be like, sign up with the three users and talk to me when you have 5,000. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I, qualification is really important. If you are going to entertain, it probably makes sense to entertain it, to, to learn about it at, at first, whether you are are bearish or bullish on the opportunity. Um, but if you do entertain it, don't you have to qualify. So ask really, qualification is a really important sales step. Um, it's when you ask a lot of questions to get to the facts of the opportunity um, so that you can decide whether it's worth your time to invest in or to push them down the self-serve route. Mm -hmm. So yeah, quali qual if you are going to invest time in this, qualification has to become a part of your conversation early on yeah. so you don't waste time. And you, you made a good point there that I want to call out, which is in the early days, let yourself make these mistakes, even if it is a mistake. Like we may reach some conclusion, do this, don't do that, but you shouldn't like I actually saw a perfect tweet about this earlier, which is basically saying uh, it's from some thought leader, startup advisor person who was like, I don't any longer try to like help people, like tell people what to do. I try to prime them so that after they learn it on their own, they learn the lesson faster. Mm -hmm. So like it in the early days, you do just have to do it and get burned a couple times and then realize, no, that didn't work. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's just how you learn. Yeah. Um, and then for the bigger ones, for the, for the actually legit ones that came in for Less Annoying CRM, the thing that I 
learned, and again, less knowing CRM the product is not a good fit for big companies. The, the hard thing about dealing with enterprises is they have all these hurdles you have to go over before you can actually, either before or after, but like at some point before the sale's made, it's like you have to get a lawyer involved to, you know, sign some documents with them. You maybe have to do a security audit, all these things that you don't have to do as self-serve customers. What I found is that nine times out of 10, those aren't like, if, if those things are blocking you, once you do them, it's going to be another set of 10 things that block you. And first of all, that might be an argument against doing this at all. But second of all, I, I don't know enterprise well enough, but if you can backload the like legal compliance and that stuff and get the other stuff out of the way first, um, that's what I've started doing. Cause we, we would do this, we'd get through the hard work and then they'd be like, Oh, and by the way, we need single sign on. We're like, well, we don't have that. Like, why didn't you say that at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So once you've qualified the legit opportunities, then it's, you, you push all of the big company stuff that is unique to them that are, that that's kind of like the uh, stamp and of approval to the end until you have basically agreed on terms for a deal and the only, you know, pending these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way you, you don't have to ever worry about those things unless you've got real money on the table. Um, that's pretty much guaranteed if you go through the hoops. Yeah. Cause these companies aren't, they're not like out to get you. Like they, you know, they want to buy presumably, but they're, they're fine wasting your time as long as it doesn't cost any of theirs. If there's like a 5% chance of buying and they can be like, go, you know, go do all the legal work and then get back to us. It, it doesn't cost them anything to ask you to do that. But as soon as you're like, well, no, let's invest 10 hours into the the other stuff if they're not serious, they'll back out at that point. I feel like. Um, at P, at do you have any other? So let's say you get past all that. Um, any other you know learnings from less knowing CRM? For us, we we had to figure out who who's a good fit and who's not. So again, we're not a good fit for big companies. So the biggest accounts we have are not traditional big companies. So we uh, we have like a partnership with one organization where we have maybe 700 users through them, but it's, it's more like a franchise or a direct sales type of model that we ever have these big accounts with. So you maybe can't know that going in, but like a a final thing I just put on your list, this is related to qualification, but just you think for yourself is like, what is what you're building good for them? (laughs) And if it's not, maybe you could close the sale, but that's probably not like worth, if you're building a startup and you're still trying to prove a model you don't want to be putting your resources towards something that isn't what you actually want to be doing long term. It sounds like it comes back to vision and whether or not you're positioned to reach that vision. And with less annoying CRM, that you were positioned to win the small business market, not the enterprise market. Yeah. In this particular case, there's an argument that this this UX team management software or or collaboration software could, uh, you know be very much positioned for, you know, teams, users expanding to teams, to companies. So, you know, that might, this might be a good example of where it does work. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a question of like, do you want that? Because the reality is a self-service business lives or dies by the product and product marketing, I think. And an enterprise sales business lives or dies by how good of a sales team you have. And if you want to put together a big, a good sales team and go close these enterprise deals, great. But that's probably, well, there's a middle ground, which is like what Slack did with the, the land and expand, which I want to talk about a little bit, but you should, you should think about what, like what you actually want to be as a company. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I uh, can let's go into lending expand because that's really what this business model is. It's mm-hmm. you know, he, it's working. It's bringing inbound leads. Like it's doing its job. But you know, part of part of the decision is you know, it, are have you nailed the self serve enough to be ready to explore these deals without imploding? And you know, could you like kind of two choices there? It, you know, not now, but maybe later or never. Um, which are kind of the same decisions, which you, you never say never. So not now, but maybe later or now. And, you know, if you, so how do you, I guess one question is how do you make that decision? And then the second question is, um, when, uh, when do, uh, I lost my thought. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I, I referenced Slack earlier. I think you you said lucid uh lucid chart does this mm-hmm. well also but th- when we say land and expand what we mean is you do a self-service thing and get a small person at the bottom of a company to use you it's an, either an individual or a team and my understanding of this is so traditional enterprise sales is you go to the ceo or cfo or you know someone with real decision making power you spend however long it takes, months or years, making this big sale. You sign the deal; they give you a mountain of money, and you implement it. And it's just this all-or-nothing shot. Right? Yeah, and you're and you're the way you're going to market is you're hiring a bunch of what are called account executives and sales development representatives who basically spam these these organizations. You know, take them out to dinner. It's a long, you know, what's called enterprise sales, and it's a sales model. You you hire sales reps. You assume that you you put them on quota. You, you, you're, if your quota assumptions hold, you make a lot of money predictably. If you don't, um, it, big, big fail. And the product almost doesn't matter because the company's not even using the product until after this whole process is completed. In fact, I just read a book that is disgusting and it literally is the product playbook for these type of companies. And it advocates for ne- not building the software until you make the sale. And literally that's what these guys, these enterprise companies do is they, they do mock-ups and they charge for both onboarding and the service in advance. Mm-hmm. And two years later, the software typically is not still working like they sold it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm anti this. So, right. It's, it sounds to me pretty clearly like user bit is not that model. No, um, no, no, no. Probably the founder needs to have a background in enterprise sales. Like it, it you know it if that's what you're going to do. So the other successful way to do this that I've seen is land and expand, which is saying it's going to be product driven rather than sales driven. You make a product that people really want to use, and most managers have a credit card that they can use to buy things below a certain threshold. Patrick McKenzie has a really interesting article about this that I don't know if he's right or not, but he says most managers have a $1,000 a month per thing limit. So what you do is you go in and you say, mine is $999 or, or nothing more than that, basically. And that allows a manager of a small team to buy your thing without going through all the normal hurdles that corporate procurement goes through. And then you get enough of these little teams using it within the company that at that point, they have no choice but to make an enterprise deal with you. They're like, our whole company is out of compliance right now, but our employees are going to like rebel if we tell them to stop using this. And then the, the enterprise sale is a lot less, has a lot less friction because it's the company that needs to make the deal. It's it's the the corporate level rather than the the SaaS company selling the product. Exactly. I've never done that. It sounds beautiful to me. It sounds amazing. Have, like, did you? I guess you haven't either. Maybe. 
I haven't either. Just I've had, I mean, my wife works at Lucid Software, so I have a, you know, and I have lots of friends there. So I've had a, an interesting view at that, but they've been very open with their strategies, especially like OpenView has some really great content um, on their website. And they, a lot of, I think Lucid's been interviewed several times for that. And also I think Saster has some Lucid playbook mm. um, type stuff, content. So that's a good place to look. The, the, the thought that I lost was, um, you know, how, I guess, let's decide that you decide, let's say you decide, hey, I want to, I need to nail the self. For, I think one thing we need to make clear is you have to nail the self-serve before this expansion works because that's your, that's your lifeblood. That's your marketing strategy. And if you fail on that while you're trying to go enterprise, the whole thing can go kaboom. So you got to be really, what I've noticed with companies who have done this successfully is that they've had massive success. They've really just dialed in their self-serve and they could build a really great business on just the self-serve side. And then they go, honestly, it's typically driven by VC and greed. They go, well, we can make a 10X this company if we go (laughs) the enterprise sales route. And I I know enough people in some some of these areas to know that that there's that it's not always sunshine and rainbow you know when you go to the enterprise sales because when you go that route you got to hire salespeople the culture changes um, you know you have to raise VC uh, you know to fund it and so there there are there are some significant upside situations by by pursuing enterprise deals through this um, outside of self serve but there's also some like consequences you can never walk away from once you once you start them. Yeah. I I think Slack is a great model for this. Even if you're going to end up there, if you go back, I you know, I can't point to specific ones, but I've read throughout their history blog posts, I'm sure you, they're still up there where like you know, they were pretty deep into their success and they wrote a blog post that was like, "We don't have a sales team." We do enterprise deals, but what happens is we've already got so much traction at the company that by the time the deal needs to happen, it's not really sales anymore. It's just send it straight to legal and and the company doesn't need to be sold. And then eventually, like now they're a publicly traded company. I'm sure they have a big sales team with people who know what they're doing, but they managed to make it work for a long, long time just by saying, we've got a great product that people want to use. You know, if you're going to give us your money, great, but we're not going to spend any time chasing that, which I think is kind of the dream. Obviously not everyone can be slack, but... <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I feel like in this scenario, um, you want to be like Slack as long as you can afford to. And why would you force yourself out of being Slack when you don't have to? So I guess there's a question here of like, do you need the enterprise deals to survive? And that changes the whole equation. Um, if you don't, it, you know, wait as long as you can is sort of where my bias goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Because Akshay, I think, said that like the, the problem is people are coming to him. He's not... I don't think it was ever a concern for him. Should I go out and do prospecting and stuff? Mm-hmm. But if someone comes knocking on my door and wants to do this deal, what do I do about it? And I think what where I'm leaning based on this conversation is it's it's a negotiation just like anything else. And like, don't negotiate from a weak position, right? If they're coming in and you have to jump through a million hoops and work hard for it, be like, not yet. But if they're coming in and they're like, I'm basically already sold, maybe like at some point you've made it easier enough because of product and stuff like that. And I, I'm not an expert on enterprise sales. I know there's different things you need to close an enterprise sale. And one thing you, I think you actually taught me this, Rick, you break people into personas mm-hmm. where you say, I want to understand how this organization is made up. Don't waste your time. I shouldn't say this, but someone's going to make a buying decision. 
And you can impress the hell out of someone else, and it doesn't matter because they can't make that decision. But having a uh, champion, I believe you called them. Did you do you remember teaching me this? Okay, I'm not making that up. Having the champion that is an internal person at the company that's really going to go to bat for you, or potentially three or four or five champions, that is going to make everything easier. And I think that's really what the strategy is about. Yeah, and I I think that that's that that's a really key potential qualifier. Do your teams currently use us? No. Well, they should try it out first. And once you have some teams using this, then we can talk about an enterprise deal. And maybe the the first automatic no is, hey, we only we only do enterprise deals with teams with teams who are already using with companies whose teams are already using our product. Yeah, um, that's a immediate just like you know reducer or qualifier. Yeah, and now uh, there may be a chicken or the egg thing where people will be like, well, we won't let our teams use it until you sign our our documents. At some point, you may need to compromise on that, but you, you want to qualify it in one way or another. Uh, another thing that came up in the kind of context before this was a three-user account or something came to them and said, I, I think it's very, very standard, not even like reasonable. It's beyond reasonable. It's normal to say we have minimums for our enterprises. We're, we're not even going to talk to you if I think $10,000 a year is probably a good number to be like, if you're not, if the the upside you're presenting is less than ten thousand dollars, go through our self service plan. Like I'll get on the phone with you, I'll talk to you, but we're not doing the enterprise thing if this deal's too small. What's the point? Yep, the, having yeah, having some sort of uh, packages um, the and rules and sort of requirements um, are great ways to 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 pre qualify and 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 bucket real opportunities versus non opportunities. Um, one question this is leading to, which is on the list I wanted to cover, was how do you say no, you know, and, and without being an ass, uh, and without like hurting someone's feelings, and 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 uh, you know, still representing the brand well. Uh, I have a lot of experience with this because this happens to us all the time right now. If you've never been through a traditional enterprise, you know, selling experience, what happens is the company emails you a spreadsheet with like a gazillion fields and they're like, fill this out or they send a request for a proposal or something like that. We get these all the time and we just say no. Um, but of course, the way you say it is what you're asking about. So I think Akshay said he had a bad experience where someone got mad at him for basically saying no, which I, as 37 Signal or Basecamp as they go by now says, don't scar on the first cut. That's not normal. Normally, I think you can just explain you know, we're a company that's re- so for me, the way I would say it is we're a company that's really focused on small business. We'd love to have you as a customer, but the reality is we're not set up to go through the process you're looking for because that's more for our com- competitors who sell to bigger businesses. I'd be happy to recommend one of them if that's where you're going, or I'd be happy to keep talking to you. But the reality is we can't follow the process that you were looking for here because we're just not set up for that. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a good script that could be repurposed uh, and really sort of you're, what you're really doing is killing, killing them with kindness on the no and offering alternatives to solve their problem. And if you do that, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. It, it, there's a, no matter who you're talking to, small business, big business, there are assholes out there that'll get mad about nothing, but they're, this is transactional for them, right? There's someone, someone from some purchasing department at some giant company is not going to get their feelings hurt when you say, Sorry, I'm not filling out your RFP. <laughs> most <laughs> most of the time. Yep, yep. Uh, and my experience with RFPs, uh, just f- yeah, we did RFPs at Zane Benefits. Um, we did some very big RFPs, uh, 
the only ones that we were in the finalists for were the ones where we had a pre-existing relationship with with the uh with the requester and we were like we were asked to fill it out as a favor to them uh because they had to check some boxes not because we they just reached out to us randomly online a lot of these people who reach out randomly online aren't actually interested in you they're actually just going to steal your ideas and give it to a competitor who they've already chosen pre-rfp and um that's a relationship sell so let's examine the ones where you already kind of had the deal done. I bet in most of those cases, they sent the RFP to other companies too. So that's, that's in the cases where it didn't work, you were one of those other companies where they are. So for people who don't know, RFP stands for request for proposal. A lot of corporations have rules about if you're going to purchase something of a certain significance, you have to go through this process to make sure you, you aren't wasting your money. And part of that process is you have to send a request for proposal out to however, like three or four, 10 different companies. It's sort of like when, you know, sometimes a, a football team knows who their next head coach is going to be, but because of the Rooney rule, they're required to interview other coaches, but they know they're not going to hire those other coaches, right? That's what's going on here. So to, to your point, Rick, I totally agree. If, if you just get a random RFP, RFP in your inbox, probably what happened is they already know who they're going with and they're just checking some requirement that corporate has and fishing for competitive data to to steal like it's it's not there's not all there's some motives behind it that are that are not all just cya they're also you know a little bit you know unfair in my opinion yeah um i i think a good for for a company that's product driven more than sales driven i would borderline say just don't deal with rfps at all or like like you said, only do it if you know like they already picked you, basically. Yeah, or you have to do it because you're going to run out of business otherwise. Yeah, sure. And you're desperate, but that's never a good place to be. Um, one thing that that came up uh, as well is when you're early on, when you're trying to figure out how to go after enterprise and you're not comfortable negotiating contracts, you don't have experience with some of the legal work. You need to you feel compelled to bring on a third party advisor, a legal advisor. Uh, attorney, a lawyer, whatever you want to call them. I call them a legal advisor. Um, I, my, I struggled with this early on in my career. I always took people's recommendations for attorneys, but I never felt like I trust fully trusted the advice I was getting because it all felt transactional and rushed and not having you know, your, your, your third party attorney never really has the full context. It wasn't until later in my like last career that I that I really understood the importance of having a personal, a very trust based professional relationship outside of your business with your primary legal advisor, because that person can save you tons of money and and tons of time early on, and you you're never too small to have this, um, and because good good attorneys are willing to invest in in you in a relationship with you when you are small. So that they can have the upside of the, your relationship when you are big, and when and it goes both ways. When you trust each other, you move so much quicker. You listen more. You um, you can be more um, transparent and conf- you know honestly like raw with your advisor. And uh, that 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 early advice is really really valuable when you can't afford it. Um, and I'm telling you, if you don't have a lawyer right now and you're working in a startup and you have, and you have traction, it doesn't have to be a whole lot of traction. 
t- go find a lawyer who you trust who's and 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 find someone who who gets it and says, you know what? I'm willing to invest in this relationship. Let's have an let's have a let's have coffee every other week and, and talk about the challenges you're facing. No charge. Um, when you have an issue, we'll work it out. And uh, you know that just that coffee will give you so much more confidence in dealing with some of these legal issues that you haven't dealt with before. That sounds great. I've never found that person personally. Mm, I've, I've I, I have ha- a, I have a lawyer I'm reasonably happy with, but like it it took a long time, and it's still not a like go get coffee type of relationship. Oh man, I so go find a new one. <laughs> Seriously, like it's it's a it's it's since I've had that per- this person in my life, uh, I just uh, man, I I recommend him all the time, and he will get my business when 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 I have it. Yeah. Um, a point I want to make about that, cause I, I don't have the right person necessarily. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to complain about my lawyer, but I've gone through a lot of bad ones. Um, 95% of corporate lawyers get all their business from giant corporations and they're going to treat you like you're a giant corporation, which you don't want. And so that's one thing to filter for is like, look for those warning signs and get out if they're behaving that way. The other 5% or four and a half percent deal with startups but not our kind of startup. They deal with funded companies. They assume you're trying to exit. You're trying to screw over every, they think you're Mark Zuckerberg and they're trying to like help you do that. And that's another thing I'd say, ask some questions that will expose that if that's how they're going to treat you. You said you need to find someone who gets it. And I think that's exactly right. Someone who gets, I am a startup, but not the kind of startup that you know about. Yep. And I'm a startup that uh, you you are interested in the industry I'm in. You understand the problem that I'm solving and you want to be a partner, not just a, a, a transaction. And I, uh, I, you can find that. And if you do, it will change your life as a, as a founder. Um, nice. Uh, one, one other question is, how do you build trust with customers when you're early on? And, you know, you kind of don't have a ton of credibility or like a huge team or a bunch of VC money to, to like validate you. I can take this one. Um, this was me. You can't, you can't really redo this, but like what I did at, at Zane benefits was, um, you know, early on I was offered the president CEO role and I said, no. And I actually pretended like I didn't pretend, but I, I pretended that I was, was that our founder was still very much involved in the company. Uh, and you know, do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you you didn't you thought if you were the CEO, yeah. people wouldn't take the company seriously. Yeah, and we were dealing with some large corp you know, entities who I worried. Pardon me, I worried that uh, uh, you know what what I'd lose deals, and I I know the feeling. Um, I don't think I think I overreacted. I honestly think that if you're if you have a real product and you have social proof, user reviews, testimonials, and you have a strong vision, and you just have you have a humble confidence uh, and just transparency. Anyone who doesn't want that today isn't the right customer for you today. And, you know, I, I would, my, my, my advice here is basically don't worry about it. Double down transparency, be real, uh, leverage your customers and your friends and partners to validate you. Um, and just transparency and, 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 and humble confidence go such a long way with the right customers. Yeah. I think the, the book crossing the chasm, it's not exactly about this, but it kind of touches on a point, which is the first people who buy your product are going to be early adopters and don't like, yes, there are people out there who won't trust a one person startup. That's not your customer yet. 
like they'll they'll come later. You want to find the people who are excited to work with the one person company who are like there there's a type of person out there where their brains just like this is new, this is cool. I want to be viewed as on the forefront of what's going on out there and they're going to love the fact that you're undiscovered at this point. And so I think, yeah, to, to your point, there's a way to go where you're faking it, where you're pretending there's a boss above you or at, at Zane Benefits also one time we had a big client come in and they hired a few temps to sit at cubicles to look like we were a bigger team than we were. I guess that can work, but like, A, that's hard. B, that's dishonest. But C, I don't even know that it gets you the type of customer you should really be shooting for in the early days. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I In this particular case, UserBit has something. Just tell the story. Use social proof. Give your customers a voice and let that, let that lose playing that game. Um, you know, if you really don't feel, if you need more to feel confident, you know, bring on some advisors and give them a percentage of revenue or you know, uh, a, you know, an, equ- an equity position. Um, I'm not a fan of that personally, but uh, that's another way to add credibility is to bring on some, you know, some third party advisors who endorse you. Yeah. Another trick I've used a lot and still use to this day is just, uh, like, use your own personal, like, like it's very powerful to say I promise. Most companies will never say that, and there's not even an I to make the promise. It's we promise. If you're just, like, I've said this to customers so many times, I'm just like, listen, you have no idea if you can trust me, but I'm telling you, you, you can decide whether or not you trust this or not. I'm committed to this for decades. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to raise your prices. I'm not going to screw you over here. I promise. And like, not everyone will trust that, but most people will be like, damn, that's better than any other software company is going <laughs> to give me. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did some research on trust earlier this year and um, I'm going to get this wrong, but when I really like boil it down to what is trust, it's basically reliability. Um, and you know, as long as you deliver for your customers and you're consistent with your mess with your prospects and you're reliable and you, you do what you say you're going to do, like, like, and then you just, you know, take advantage of all the, the social proof that you can, you know, provide from your customer base, um, review, review sites, case studies, testimonials, you know, that's so rare <laughs> today that like, honestly, mm-hmm. it's sad, but that's enough. Yeah. People know the second they're talking to a genuine person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, one final thing uh, on this topic, uh, and then we're, we probably should wrap up. Um, oh, actually, we already covered it. So yeah, I think that's probably it. Any, I just have, have a closing. Else? I just had a note here that if anyone's interested in getting into enterprise stuff, but they're coming from a non-sales or business background. I find the Art of Product podcast really helpful for this. Um, one of the hosts of that, Ben Ornstein, who was actually on on this podcast as a guest a while back, he st- he's a programmer in his background. He's the CEO of Tuple, which is a pair programming app that's started as a self-service type of thing and is moving more and more enterprise because he's getting so much inbound interest. And if you go back and listen to these episodes, you hear as he's learning how to do this and how to make this work. Um, now, it's kind of a unicorn story where people want it so much. I think he kind of can't mess it up. But you can hear all the story, all the lessons. In particular, episode 122 of the Art of Product podcast, uh, they have a guest on who's kind of an expert in enterprise sales. And they, they get into like, how the politics of a corporation work and all that kind of stuff. So I'd recommend listening to at least that episode. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if you saw this, but what, what's it's been Ornstein. 
Mm-hmm. And what's his partner's name or his founder, uh, his like, co-host name? Derek Reimer. Did he just announce a, a, an appointment scheduling app? Yes, he did. Oh, Today, did I, I think. Did, did, how did that make you feel? Well, I knew he was, he, he has already said he was working on one, but I think it's great because I don't think my customer and his customer overlaps at all. So I hope he introduces some really awesome ideas that I can introduce to a lower tech savvy group of people than who he's targeting. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, do you have anything else you want to cover before we jump off? No, I think I'm good. All righty. Um, hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. I'll see you next week, Tyler. All right. See you.